0: To writer's showcase. I'm your host, Christy Stratus, author of Anatomy of a Darkened Heart and Brotherhood of Secrets. And I am also the owner of my editing company, which you can find at proofpositivepro.com. This show is part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And today I'm welcoming debut novelist, Cassandra Montag. Thank you so much for being here, Cassandra. Oh, thank you, Christy. It's a pleasure. Well, this is very exciting. You are a debut novelist. You are not a a new writer, actually, but we will get to that in a little bit. Um, So first, can you tell us a bit about After the Flood? It's been described as a climate change dystopia. It's been described as
1: post-apocalyptic. So
0: tell us about it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So After the Flood, the the summary of the story is that it's set roughly a century in the future, and um, there's been a global flood that has reduced the earth to just an archipelago of mountaintops that are above water, and everything else is flooded. And it's a story of a mother who has two daughters, and um, she lives to protect her younger daughter, Pearl, but she um, she ends up finding out during a sort of random um, violent encounter that her older daughter, Ro, is actually being held captive up in a northern colony and is in danger. And so Myra decides to throw caution to the wind and try to rescue Roe. But that decision ends up putting her own life in danger and also um, Pearl's and everyone else who she meets along the way.
0: Wow. There's a lot there. There's an entire, you know, it it may not be Fantasy per se, it's, it's of course, dystopian, but there is a lot of world building with that yes. because you've got a whole – it's not a new world, but it's a whole other world, what with them having to survive with only uh, mountaintops and – and water. So that, how tricky was that for you?
1: It was, it was difficult. I had to, I had to do a ton of research. So I'm originally from Nebraska um, and I don't have a lot of experience with the ocean, with ships or sailing or fishing. And so to create this world, I had to do a lot of um, research first into ships and sailing and fishing because Myra is a fisher and that's kind of her place in this world is that she has this skill, this survival skill that other people need. And so I had to do that research. But then I also actually looked back to history for, um, mm-hmm. to do research. I looked at um, the Vikings. I looked at the sea peoples of ancient Egypt. And I um, tried to examine, you know, how did people live on the water before technology? Mm-hmm. Um, because even though this is a novel that's set in the future, in some ways, it feels um, a little bit historical because it's looking at how are people surviving in groups after civilization has collapsed. And we know no longer have all of the modern amenities that we really depend on.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. And uh, it's also interesting that you've chosen for Myra to be, um, she's a fisher. You know, she's a, a fisher woman, guess yeah. you could call her. And that is, of course, not a, a typical trade for women, um, even when you watch if it's, you um, any kind of I'm trying to think of one of those TV shows that has, you know, fishing or extreme fishing. Or right. Anything like
1: that. It's a lot of men. It's male. Yeah, it's dominated. A lot of men. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's kind of an interesting um, choice that you had there. Um, did you do that to sort of prove that she's a strong woman? Did it sort of just work with the plot? Or how did you figure it?
1: Yeah, a lo- I think both. You know, I mean, on one hand, she she definitely is a strong woman because she's independent. She She's isolated and she's taking care of her young daughter by herself. And mm-hmm. so she has to be able to provide food for her daughter and for herself. Um, so on one hand, it was natural. Um, but on the other hand, I did also want to really show um, a woman being able like you say, to be able to do something that's sometimes thought of as a, a male trade or, you know, something that men, um, are typically doing. And, um, you know, what's interesting though, is that I also kind of wanted to break down the sort of, Maybe gender barriers with it a little bit because she's taught how to fish by her grandfather. So I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of it comes from um, a male figure in her family who's very loving and very supportive of her, and gives her this ability um, to learn a skill that then Mm -hmm. serves her through the rest of her life. So I, you know, I wanted it to be in some ways about a strong woman being able to provide for her daughter in this dangerous world, but I also wanted it to be a little bit about a family legacy of this sort of ancestral trait of, you know, knowing the skill and then like Myra then carrying it forward into a new world. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that. And you've brought me a little bit into something I wanted to ask you about. And there are actually a number of big themes that you have in your story. Um, And the way they come together, I think, you know, probably has a lot to, a lot to do with um, not just the plot, but whatever you're trying to get across, like some of the things that you're telling us right now. Um, So, you know, climate change and motherhood are both major parts of this. Of course, right. the whole world is built on climate change in your book. And motherhood, as you said, is a central aspect. And both of these themes you know, include drastic changes. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, you know, again, is this something that you sort of put those two things together on purpose? Do they sort of reflect each other or contrast with each other? How do you handle that?
1: Yeah, no, that's such a great question, because I feel like that's really getting at the heart of the novel. There is this parallel between, like you say, sort of climate change, or maybe as we say, Mother Earth, mm. and Myra as a mother. And so yeah, it was it was something that originally happened organically that I wasn't planning. But then over time, I began to see a lot of parallels, and I tried to push them to the forefront. Um, I think it's interesting that you know, just looking at history, um, when we see oppression, we see sometimes oppression over land and we see oppression over women's bodies. And mm-hmm. I think the reason for both of that is because of fertility. There's fertility in the land and there's fertility in women's bodies. And so I see a bit of a parallel between. Mother Earth and then women, um, with their capacity to be mothers. And I wanted to play that out in interesting ways. And after the flood, and, um, one of the ways I wanted to do that is to show a sort of dualism that I see both in motherhood, um, for, you know, women, but also in this sense of like the way that we call mother earth, you know, a sort of mother. And that's that, um, motherhood involves, you know, this sort of, um, compassion, protection, um, you know, Mm -hmm. sustainability, um, growth, fertility, but it also, motherhood can also be really sort of fierce. There's this strength and this fierce to it, fierceness to it. And you see that in the animal kingdom with the way that animals will protect their young. And I wanted Myra to be a little bit primal in that way, you know, like her fierceness about finding Roe and protecting Roe is at times not quite sane. It's not quite rational. There's no real good excuse for it. Um, But she is so willing to do it because she has that fierce motherly love. And we see that also in nature, in storms, and um, just the sort of way that nature is so powerful. There's this quote that I love by um, Maya Angelou, which is, if I were to describe my mother, I would describe a hurricane and its perfect power. And I think that really captures kind of the spirit of the book, you know this like perfect power I mean nature is something that gives us life, but it's also something that can destroy us and holds a lot of power and I think motherhood is like that
0: wow that that's an actually an amazing uh contrast it's an amazing uh way to define it, yeah. and I didn't quite expect for those are amazing points. I really yes. enjoyed them, I have to say. yeah. Um, I did, I think uh, I read something about, just to sort of play off what you were saying, um, Myra's uh, husband or ex-husband, Rose's yeah. father, um, mm-hmm. is, is also part of this where he has either taken the child or has something to do with her disappearance. Right. Is that right? So yeah. that's interesting the way that you're saying that you know, Mother Earth and the motherly spirit and the fierceness and everything. Sure, you know, she's gone off with the father or she's been kidnapped. I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but she's with another parent, and yet, of course, there's still that fierceness.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this sense um with Myra, you know, and maybe with most mothers in general, but especially with Myra that no one can care for this child the way I will, you know? And in the book, she receives some hints that um, Roe is not quite safe, that Jacob's no longer alive and stuff. So that kind of also gives her impetus to feel like there's really no one else out in the world you know, who is looking out for Row? There's mm-hmm. only me. And um, that gives her so much of a drive, um, you know, to make decisions that are really difficult and that morally, I think, are reprehensible. And yet at the same time, um, I hope that readers can at least understand where she's coming from, even if they, you know, of course, don't agree with them because they're not good decisions.
0: Yeah, and that's part of what makes great literature, having yeah. characters who aren't always making the right decisions, but we can also relate to their mistakes.
1: Yes. That's
0: that's excellent. Absolutely. Um, I did want to bring up, um, since this book is based on a world that comes about because of climate change, mm-hmm. I noticed that climate change is really, really coming to the forefront in fiction a lot. Um, there are a lot of literary journals and magazines actually looking for climate change literature. There are some journals even based on it. Oh. Um yeah, it's pretty interesting. That
1: is interesting, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, of course, it's a huge issue right now. It's a huge issue politically. It's a huge issue environmentally. And I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about it since you include it so heavily in your mm-hmm. book um, or it's a basis. So, you know, why do you think this is a topic that we are exploring in literature? A lot of times literature can be an escape. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it's bringing in something that's like a huge topic that we're hearing about almost every day. So why do you think this is something that's being included so much?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, like you say, literature can be an escape. Um, And I think the other side of that is that literature can um, face fears and anxieties that we have already in our culture, but it provides an escape because it's, you know, typically, so for instance, just using after the flood as an example, after the flood is an extreme example of climate change because it's a global flood that is. Um, much more extreme than what we would experience just if icebergs were, were to melt, right? Um, it's much more extreme. And so literature sort of provides this safe space, I think, because it's imaginary for the time in which you're reading it. And mm-hmm. so I think that that could be part of the reason why it's becoming so much a part of the forefront of literature right now and conversations about books is because it's on people's minds. Um, you know, I think that there is a bit of a collective anxiety um, about what is the future going to look like for us. Mm-hmm. And these sort of dystopian novels that look at climate change, or at least have that as a backdrop, they're allowing readers to explore it, but in a safe way, because it's just, it, it's in their imagination for right now. And so it is an escape because this is an extreme world. So it's more extreme than, you know, what we're facing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So it still, you know, occupies that space. And yet it is realistic enough that I think it gets people um, and maybe gives people like a safe space to start talking about what they think life could look like if climate change were to continue and if it were to manifest in ways um, that we haven't predicted yet. So I think it's I think it's kind of both. you know it's um, it is scary, but yet it's since it's still a space of the imagination, it feels a little bit safer, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's the same way that we explore um, difficult and dangerous uh, relationships, even. Any of that we can enjoy. Certainly reading about it and seeing how do people deal with this? How do characters deal with it? It's the same kind of thing. That that makes total sense. Yeah. So since we're talking about difficult situations, um, another theme in your book is survival, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty clear. So um, from your bio, I noticed that it says uh, at 7 Uh, you made your first picture book series and that Mm -hmm. featured a man who lived alone in the wilderness with his dog fighting fighting together for survival. So it seems to me that survival has always been an interest in something you've written about.
1: Yes, absolutely. No, that's a really, that's a good point. It is. I've always been so fascinated about how do people survive in difficult situations? I'm not quite sure why that is. I wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that I I grew up in rural Nebraska and I spent a lot of time just exploring um, the river close to my house. And when you you spend a lot of time in nature, you actually see a lot of death. Um, Mm. I remember, for instance, I was playing down at the river in the wintertime and I saw a deer that was dead and frozen in the ice. You know, the river had frozen and it was sort of like preserved in the ice. And it was just this really sort of haunting image Mm -hmm. of life, both preserved and yet a dead body. And I think that when you're out in nature, you do, you see a lot of that. And I think then the, you know, the natural sort of progression is then to think about survival and, you know, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to sort of forfeit death, to sort of um, be able to stave it off for a little while and i think a lot of my you know imaginative sort of journeys were all about how do people do that how do people do that on their own as individuals but how do people also do that as groups and that's part of what i wanted to explore in after the flood because in the beginning of the novel Myra's by herself and she's trying to survive alone she has a very isolationist philosophy Mm -hmm. um however she ends up realizing that she needs a ship, um, you know, a larger ship to get her to row. And so she joins a group of people. And then the novel very much becomes about you know, what does survival mean when everyone is making decisions as a group? And -hmm. what are the politics and interpersonal relationships involved when you're trying to work with other people to try to allocate resources and survive in a very difficult circumstance? So, Mm -hmm. it yeah, it was really, I think, a lot of, um, you know, it really came from my obsession in childhood with survival and how do people stave off death?
0: It's a great point about the difference between um, surviving independently and surviving in a group. Of course, you know, uh, you know, as the mother figure, she's going to be able to your main character, Myra, is going to be able to make all the decisions that, you know, she thinks are right when she's on her own, not on her own, but with her child. Right. And and then, of course, in a group who becomes the leader, who does she trust and how, you know, those are really great points, very interesting things to explore. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was it was a lot of fun writing that part. You know, I mean, I loved writing about Myra and Pearl just by themselves. Mm -hmm. But then I really enjoyed exploring the relationships of people on the ship, because Myra did have to learn that what she wanted, you know, she wasn't going to get it necessarily. And um, it was a very different situation for her. And it was in a lot of ways, more fraught um, with difficulty. Mm -hmm. Sure, it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I
0: know that you've said um, that you have a few favorite novelists, but a couple of them caught my eye and they were Margaret Atwood and Shirley Jackson. Yeah. So um, I was wondering if there's anything in your writing in general or in After the Flood in particular that you would say reflects their influence on you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think with Margaret Atwood, the first thing I would say is almost all of her novels deal with um, feminism and power, you know, how women, contr- you know, how women achieve power, how they give it up, um, different questions surviving, um, you know, about sort of women in power. And mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm also really interested in that because in After the Flood, Myra, um, you know, she is very manipulative at times. She's very deceitful. And mm-hmm. those are ways that she tries to gain a little bit of power when she otherwise doesn't. And they're often terrible, terrible ways because she puts other people's lives in danger. At the same time, um, for me, at least in, in writing Myra, it was understandable to me that she was trying to grasp power because she had none. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to explore what do people do and what decisions do they make when they don't have any power, when they feel powerless and, you know, how in a sense is being powerless, a traumatic experience because Mm. you feel like you have no choices, you have no options. Um, So I think that's one way in which Margaret Atwood has really influenced me. And then with Shirley Jackson, I love the voice in her books. I mean, Mm. it's so haunting and precise and it feels like there is an Actual person who's speaking to you um, in her novels, and I think it's that quality of voice that I um, really made me want to to bring you know a very real voice to After the Flood, and um, I would say with that also is this sense and. Tr- but you know if there's an action packed scene there's this sense that something's a little bit wrong and i and i wanted that to also be present after the flood um even mm-hmm. if we don't have like a a full out battle you have this sense that like something is going to happen that's you know going to put the characters in even greater jeopardy than they're already in
0: I love that, uh, you know, sense of foreboding that's sort of, you mm-hmm. know, just in there. And um, I want to just quickly go back to something you said about Margaret Atwood, uh, her influence on your writing. And uh, when you're talking about gray areas, yeah, some, something that's definitely right to the character, but to a reader may be able to see like the higher moral standing. But you right. can't when you're in that situation, right? It's a little bit different. I love yeah. exploring things like that and I think it's a fascinating thing to write. So I wonder did Myra make some decisions like that you didn't expect her to make or that you sort of diss her over or anything <laughs> like that.
1: Well yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, but there's a decision she makes about a quarter, I think it's a quarter of the way through the novel mm-hmm. that um, I found upsetting because mm. I, you know, she there's a, you know, kind of a decision a quarter of the way through and then maybe um, a little bit before the halfway mark where um, without giving a spoiler away, you know, someone in the ship ends up um, in great danger mm. and um, someone in the ship ends up experiencing a huge loss and going through like life changing grief because of what Myra has done. And, and that was kind of difficult for me to write um, because it pained me to have my main character responsible for these things because of the decision she made. And yet at the same time, I, because I was inhabiting her, her mind and her perspective, I understood why she was making those choices, even though I didn't agree with them. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about literature is that, like you said, it's really interesting, you know, it's really easy to sort of Judge someone making difficult decisions while you're in an armchair reading about it. And they're like out there, you know, in a very dangerous world, um, making difficult decisions. So I think it's a little bit of a a feat of the imagination to surpass that judgment that you initially have and instead try to um, really try to think, like you said before, you know, what would I do if I was in this kind of a situation?
0: Yeah, and of course, that's much deeper than like you said, when you're sitting in your armchair and you're right. thinking, well, just do this, just do
1: that. You know? Yes, it seems so <laughs> easy, right? <laughs>
0: Um, But, you know, as I said in the beginning of our interview, um, you are, yes, a debut novelist, but this is actually nowhere near your first time being published in general. You've published essays, you've published short fiction, uh, you have a lot of poetry that's been published. Um, Do you have a preferred form? And also I was wondering how you decide, um, like, which ideas are going to take what format?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. It's and that's something that I feel like I'm always learning about. You know, the question of how do I decide what ideas will take what form? Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, my preferred form is novels. I love writing novels, Um, but you know, when I started out writing, my favorite form was poetry, and that that is why you know I wrote and published poetry for about a decade before Mm -hmm. I turned to fiction, and I loved poetry because I loved the emphasis on image and emphasis on language. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as I sort of grew and changed as a writer, I started to really fall in love with story and characters. And that's where they really shine in novel writing. Um, As far as how do I decide, you know, where an idea will go, part of it has to do with scope. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, if I want, if I have an idea that feels like a small moment, a small Mm -hmm. moment in time, it possibly could be a poem. If I have an idea that combines one or two small moments, it maybe is an essay that I could weave together a couple of different um, images, a couple of different experiences if I have an idea that encompasses an entire world, then that feels like a little bit like a novel, you know, cause mm. I have a lot of characters, I have an entire world I need to create. So I think a lot of it for me has to do with what is the scope of the idea? How much, mm. if I have this idea, how much material is it bringing to me? Um, mm. And and that's kind of how I start to parse it out. With that being said though, I have actually turned short stories into poems. Um, I have used poetry to influence um, essays or short stories. So I would say that it's also very organic where even if I choose to write something, it can always be written in a different form. And I can, you know, just sort of change it from there.
0: Sure. And um, that, that makes total sense. The scope is a great way to tell, I think. Yeah. I think it's almost as mathematical as you can get in something creative like this. Right. (laughs) But um, I think that's a great way to tell. And one of the things that you said, you started mostly with poetry. Yeah. And um, I think personally, because I also started mostly with poetry in such a short form, you choose your words extremely carefully, you know, I mean, every word counts. um, But you know, you can focus on one word for a while to try and figure out what's really the best way to get this across. And I think that that is a really great um, sort of gateway to writing novels because or even, even into um, editing your novel, because That's one of the things that can be toughest, I think, for authors, getting the right word choice in there, being able to express an idea concisely and yet deeply. Do you think that poetry had that effect for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, initially, it was actually hard to write novels because I was obsessing so much about each word. you know, and yeah. you can't you can't obsess too much when you have to write a hundred thousand words or something. Mm-hmm. but um yeah, it it was really helpful with editing because, And also I would say, you know, with, with poetry, you can see the entire thing Mm -hmm. at once on one page. And that kind of gives you a different like conceptual ability with trying to think about a piece of work as a whole. And so because I had done that with poetry, then when I wrote my novel, I felt like I had a little bit of experience with trying to think about what does this look like as a whole? What is it saying as a whole? Even though I couldn't sit, you know, see it all on just one page, I still had that sort of practice of mentally thinking about what is this piece saying? You know, if I were to take mm-hmm. it all together, um, So, yeah, I mean, poetry did, you know, it is, like you said, um, it can give you a lot of different skills that really help you with novel writing. And um, I do think that sort of attention to precision of language is one of them.
0: Mm hmm. Absolutely.
1: So what can we
0: expect from you next? Are we going to get another um, more contemporary fiction or, or not another, but would we get a contemporary fiction from you? Because I could see you being excellent at writing that just based on the style of your writing, or will it be dystopian? What are we looking at?
1: Yeah. So, um, that's a great question. I, um, I would love to write a sequel to After the Flood someday, but right now I'm working on something different and it is contemporary, like you say. So yeah, it's a contemporary gothic murder mystery mm-hmm. that's set in the Nebraska sandhills and it's really sort of haunting. And, um, I'm really hoping that, um, it'll also appeal to fans of After the Flood. That sounds exciting.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Cassandra. Can you tell us where everyone can find you afterwards?
1: Yeah. Um, so I have a, a Facebook author page, which is Cassandra Montag. And um, same with Instagram. I think it's Cassandra.montag. And my website is CassandraMontag.com
0: perfect. Thank you all so much for joining us on Writers Showcase. This has been a copyrighted podcast owned by Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, and Creative Edge Marketing. Our next live interviews, and we have a number of them in October, are October 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to be talking to H.M. Gooden again. We did talk to her, and we're going to talk to her again, see what she's up to now. October 14th is going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern. These are all live Facebook, by the way. Um, That will be Catherine Hudson. She's an editor and an author. Um, October 19th, we're going to be live at 2 p.m. Eastern, and that'll be with Tosca Lee. She's been up to a lot of exciting stuff recently. Brand new book. Uh, it's it's very exciting. And then on October 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern, we're going to have a panel. It's going to be a science fiction panel, and we're going to have some really great contributors, Robert Sawyer, Ed Willett, uh, Jeffrey Carver, and Christina Rienzi. So don't miss those. Check our Facebook page for updates so you never miss a live stream and we will see you soon.